0: All right, my friends, this is lesson number four about smarting anti-Semitism. I must tell you, as you know by now, that this lesson four is our fourth and final session of the series. Don't worry. By the end of tonight's class, you'll learn a lot of new things about about a lot of additional opportunities to study together. So we'll have plenty of chances to uh, to continue learning. But I want to open up by, of course, thanking our generous course sponsors, Dr. Alex and Laura Doman. Dr. Joy Maxie and Howard Feinstein. Thank you very much for the sponsorship, and thank you all for being part of this this incredible journey as we open up and begin our fourth exciting session. Okay, so they tell a story about um, a big macher governor. You know what a macher is? A big macher. You guys know that phrase, big macher. Macher is. How do you translate macher? Macher is. Um, Big shot. A big shot, yeah, a big shot, like a big, yeah. All right, Big Macher. So the Big Macher governor visits a, the small rural town in his state, middle of nowhere. In Yiddish, we call this Yehuppitz. Yehuppitz, you know Yehuppitz? It's that small town. Yehuppitzville, sometimes it's called, just if you want to give it a little bit of a <coughs> of a title. Anyway, so this Big Macher governor visits Yehuppitzville and uh, yeah, so he's meeting with everybody. Comes out. I mean, it's not that many people. Everyone comes out, and they greet the governor. How's it going? Maybe he's looking to get reelected. Maybe he just wants a press up. Whatever. Either way, the media is there. The local media, which is a guy with a camera that goes like this. Does anyone have a camera that goes like this? I don't know. I just felt like that would be a thing. All right. Anyway, so he's uh, he's he's schmoozing. They used to he, do that for movie cameras. There you go. So. See, and they still had that old camera. So meanwhile, meanwhile, what what happens? So the mayor, the the, the governor decides he's going to get, you know, he's going to get some good press here. So he goes over to the mayor and he says in a nice loud voice, not a whisper. He says, Mr. Mayor, tell me whatever you need and I'm going to get you whatever you need for your small town. He says, great. There's two very important things that our town needs. The governor says, fire away. Your wish is yours. He says, all right, first thing, we don't have a doctor. We don't have a doctor that, uh, that lives here, that operates here. We're reliant on, you know, other things. We don't have a local doctor. The governor says, no problem, whips out a cell phone, you know, pull, puts it to his ear, dials something, puts it to his ear, says, yeah, 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 he has a conversation. Closes the phone, done, taken care of. What's the second problem? Mr. Governor, there's no cell phone reception at all in this part of town. yeah. You with me? Yeah? I'm looking for reactions. All right, I'm just waiting to see if it hits. Does it hit? It might hit. It did hit. It wouldn't hit. All right, my friends, here we go. So, uh, thank you. I heard (laughs) Jerry. Thank you very much for the rim shot. All right, my friends, tonight you are in for a real treat. We have saved the best for last. And I mean that seriously because tonight's class is out of this world good. Tonight, we are going to deal with the most important topic when it comes to anti-Semitism. And I'm sure you'll agree. And the most important topic when it comes to anti-Semitism is simply this. What do we do about it? Right? When anti-Semitism rears its ugly head, what do we do about it? That is the topic of tonight's session. What do we do when we encounter an anti-Semite or an anti-Semitic action or rant? Now, it could be from anyone. It could be uh, something that's said or done by a politician, a celebrity, a business leader, a public figure, or a neighbor, or a relative perhaps, a friend you thought was a friend, or a stranger. What do you do? Do you call them out? Do you name and shame? Do you protest and demonstrate? Do you do the most popular thing to do in 2021, which is cancel? Do you cancel? You hit the old cancel button. I've seen that, by the way. They have buttons now that you, they sell. You can actually, it connects with the USB to your computer. It's a cancel button. You hit it. Boom. And that you know, you think your meditative thoughts, who should be canceled? Boom. And you cancel the person. Is that perhaps the approach, right? What is the most powerful and effective way to actually deal with anti-Semitism on the ground? In our previous sessions, We've explored lots of things. We've explored the origins of anti-Semitism, the psychology of hate. We've talked about the power of faith and trust and positivity. We've talked about the many faces of anti-Semitism and modern expressions of anti-Semitism. But today, in our final session, we're going to learn, again, the most important thing, what to do about anti-Semitism. This is an incredibly important discussion, so let's begin. I must also welcome Toba, welcome, and Kenneth, welcome. It is great to have you with us. If I missed anybody, my apologies. Welcome as well. All right. So I want to begin our conversation about practically dealing with anti-Semitism on the ground head on. I want to begin this conversation by opening up the floor to conversation for a moment. And I want to ask you to tell me of an anti-Semitic experience that you have personally experienced, something that you have personally encountered in your life, or someone close to you, pretty much a first-hand, maybe second-hand story. Jump in. We'll take just a few of these, uh, and and I'm bringing this up for a specific reason. All right, jump in. Give me the the quick version of the story, because we have a lot to get to. All right, anybody want to share? Don't be bashful. Just hit that unmute button. Boom. Susan.
1: Okay. So when I was in high school, I was going to a local high school very close to um, where I live now, Barcliffe High School, and they got kids that uh, tormented my brother and me, and they used to put notes in our locker, and they put a note in our mailbox saying we're going to take up where Eichmann left off. Wow. Things
0: like that. Wow, and and who did this? These were kids.
1: These were students. Wow,
0: wow. I was, I,
1: I was in eighth grade, so it was, but um, wow. it, was, it was pretty traumatic.
0: That that does sound pretty traumatic. Thank you for sharing. Okay, any more stories? Any more first-hand or second-hand stories, Ezra? Well,
2: um, this was like back in the sixties. Fred uh, and I were riding home on the school bus. So I would think I was probably seventh, eighth grade. And uh, some kids looked at us. Was, she, was, she wasn't she was even Jewish. She was Catholic. When I was Jewish. We were good friends. And one kid said to me, dirty kike. Wow. I had to go home and ask my mother what a kike was because I had no idea. Right. You know, that I was. Uh, right. It was a pejorative. So, you know, it was. Uh, that was back in the 60s. So it was right. a, a good time ago. But,
3: uh, you know, anti-Semitism in, in Alabama was rampant.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you.
3: Since we're an older couple, we have many stories. When I was in the Army, I had a sergeant say to our group of our battery, which was 120 Jews out of 130 people, and he said, you guys are different than the rest of us and we had somebody say what's that mean he says well jews are different and the guy said what's that mean he says well you're no good Mm. and he said where'd you get that from and he says that's what i know wow when i was uh 15 years old i was attacked and sent to a hospital with a concussion from three got three five guys that decided that Jews were no good. And I grew up in a tough neighborhood, so uh, we understood. Uh, and my wife was just reminding me that we, when we were in our second house, wherever that was, where
1: was
3: No, the, ha- the last house. Oh, the last house.
1: Uh a workman talked about Jew in a spell.
3: Wow! I
1: don't know if he knew we were Jewish, but that was the term he used. Wow. But I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. I didn't know the world wasn't Jewish. Right. Until I had a job in the bank.
0: <laughs> wow. All right. Thank I'd you. I'd for.
3: I'd like you to know, Rabbi, it never stopped me.
0: Good. Good. It
3: never, it never stopped me.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate the stories. Wow. Powerful. Tom.
2: I was in front of the uh, Decatur post office uh, during the time of research for a book about Decatur City Schools, and a former judge who I knew, had known from working out at the Y together, um, asked me why I was writing about, in his mind, whites and blacks. I said it wasn't a racial issue. It was about Christians and Jews. And he said, those Sharpies, we just hated them. Mm. And I didn't know the term at that time. And I was Pretty mature, but the term Sharpie was different uh, for me. I went on to find out. And of course, that judge uh, has passed on. His wife's still living, and she respects the work that was done on that book. But that was a, a personal term which uh, would have offended my family and children and me indirectly.
0: Yeah, thank you. Adina Malka, jump in. Oh,
1: um, I was. Um on a trip i was with a group of uh toronto it was a toronto um toronto people who were going to cuba and um i heard one of the the men saying to the other one like oh uh, we got a good price we really jewed him down
0: mm. yeah uh, thank you guys for sharing these stories i mean very uh, a lot, a lot of, a lot of emotions with these stories. A lot of emotions with these stories.
3: I just want to add one thing. Yeah. When I was in the army, we were called the Jewish Brigade. We gave it to ourselves. We right. called ourselves the Jewish Brigade. I don't know how it happened, but there were 120 Jews out of 130 people in a training battery in Corpus Christi, Texas. Wow.
0: That's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a, a badge of pride, I'm sure, for you guys. Jewish Brigade. Beautiful, beautiful. Turn it into a positive, for sure. I, I, I want to move from personal stories of anti-Semitism to, I would call them public stories of anti-Semitism. And no politics, but I want to ask, what's a story that you know of like uh, that, that rings of anti-Semitism? Again, not, not a political story. I'm not I'm not looking to start getting political. But what's a public story, a public figure that perhaps... Uh, you know, a celebrity that perhaps, you know, said something anti Semitic that became a big, a big kerfuffle, a big deal.
2: I'll, I'll say something about, you know, this is really an Atlanta story, um, Leo Frank, you know, uh, where he was basically convicted and hanged. And Mel Gibson. You know?
0: Right. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Good. What else? Adina Malka, yeah.
1: Well, um, Mel Gibson is a famous movie star, right. and he is openly anti Semitic. No apologies. He made
0: a movie, I
3: think
0: it was called The Passion. Passion,
3: yeah. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Bill. Henry
3: Ford. Yeah, Henry Ford. Yeah, Bill. Certainly certainly the Jaime Town comment from Reverend Jesse Jackson.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Jesse Jackson.
3: Henry Ford,
1: Charles (sighs)
0: Lindbergh. Yeah. Okay, good, 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 good.
1: good. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Okay, good. All right, so here, here's what I want to say. You know, when we encounter, and, and thank you again for all the input. Uh, I'm just going to mute everybody to have a nice clear background for now. I want, to, I want to share some thoughts. When we encounter slurs personally, when we encounter acts of anti-Semitism, when we encounter, again, personally, when we encounter slurs or acts of anti-Semitism on a more public level, from public figures, whether it's media, celebrity, politicians, or whatever it is. The question is, what is the best way to respond? What is the best response? What would the best messaging be? What's the best way to handle this? What I want to do to open up this conversation because I want to share very specific Jewish teaching. It's not the only teaching. Don't worry. I'm not presenting the only approach tonight, but I want to pre- present what I think will be perhaps a novel insight into how to handle anti-Semitism in a, in a, in a clear and effective manner. It's not going to work all the time, but this is a major teaching. In order to, to jump into this topic of, of, of this approach, how to handle anti-Semitism, I wanna go back in time 50 years, 51 years, almost 52 years, to January of 1970. Little background, for two years, I'm sorry, for two decades, France had been supplying arms, weapons to Israel. It had been the primary supplier of weapons to the State of Israel. Shortly before the Six-Day War in 1967, Israel had ordered and paid for 50 Mirage fighter jets built in and supplied by France. That was the order, and it was paid. Can you imagine even paying for your order? And then that's yeah, that's that's a good thing. So what happens? Just before, shortly before the outbreak of the Six Day War, the president of France, Charles de Gaulle, and I believe there's an airport named after him, yeah? Happens to be in, uh, in France. Charles de Gaulle announced that he is suspending all weapon sales to all sides of the conflict. Now, that action disproportionately affected Israel for the negative because the other sides in the Six-Day War, in, the, in that conflict, for example, Egypt and Syria, were being supplied also by Russia and primarily by Russia. So their, their, the hit that they took in France not supplying the, um, the weaponry, the arms, was much less than Israel's than the hit that Israel took. Be that as it may, that embargo stood for a few years. Fast forward to the date or the time that I, t- that I told you before, January 1970. There's a new president... In France, his name is George Pompidou. And Pompidou announces in January 1970 that France will be selling Mirage fighter jets to which country? Libya. Pompidou announces he's selling French-built Mirage fighter jets to Libya, a sworn enemy of Israel. He announces this even as he continued the arms embargo to Israel. So I want to read to you the New York Times write-up of this situation. I'm gonna—you have it in your books, page one hundred and sixteen. I'll put up the text on the screen so we can read it together. All right, here we go. Okay, Mirage as to Libya, text number one from the New York Times, January tenth, nineteen seventy. After much hesitation, French officials acknowledged tonight that about 50 Mirage jet fighter planes would be sold to Libya. The confirmation of the sale was expected to provoke sharp protests from Israel. The Israelis suspect that the planes will sooner or later find their way to the fighting fronts. The French defense ministry reaffirmed the French embargo policy of selling no arms to the countries. Directly in conflict, Israel, the United Arab Republic, Jordan, and Syria, and said that they were convinced that Libya sought to supply her own forces. Israeli fears of the Libyan mirages is based on a conviction shared by some French experts that the Libyan Air Force in its present state could not absorb such numbers of a highly advanced plane. The fear is compounded by the aggressive stance taken toward Israel by the new revolutionary military regime, which has been in power in Libya since early September. The plane sold to Libya is believed to be the Mirage 3, the same type as the 50 built for Israel, but placed under embargo in 1967 the israelis are expected to find particularly galling the fact that they have been denied about the same number of planes now made available to a hostile arab country are you with me on the story does the story make sense yes anybody remember the story yes yes okay yeah so this is what's going on and israel and jews are incensed right how now by the way the Times got it wrong, or their information was wrong. Either way, Fra- France ended up selling to Libya, not 50 planes, the 50, 50- 110 Mirage fighter jets. Not 50, 110 for the Libyan army. Yeah, as we say in <laughs> Yiddish, Thank you very much. Wonderful. And to the Israelis, it was clear what's going on here. This is a workaround, and it's anti-Semitic, and it's dangerous, and it's an existential threat, etc., the question is, the question is, you're there January 1970, February 1970. What are you going to do? What should, how should world Jewry respond? How should American Jewry respond? How would you respond? Let's open up the mics. Open up. What would you say? What would you do? Jump in. What would you say? What would you do? There
1: was a, there
0: was a boycott. A, a boycott. Good. Okay. Boycott yeah. France. Excellent. I remember that. Yeah. What else? What else? What, what, what would you say if, if, if uh, Pompidou visits the U.S.? Yeah, what should we do?
1: There were demonstrations
0: also. Demonstration, protest. Again, they didn't have the language in 1970 that we have in 2021. Cancel France. Cancel Pompidou. Right? Big banners. That's it. Take them down. And, 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 and here's what I want to say. We're going to come back to this. We're going to come back to the story a little bit later. We're going to see what happened and see, most importantly, what the Rebbe said about this in 1970. Right Right as, as this was going on, you will be shocked. I believe you will be shocked at, uh, at, at, at the narrative, but we'll, we'll get back to it in a little bit. But first, let's take a look at some classic Jewish teachings on the matter of how to respond to a hostile entity. How do we, what's the best response to someone who's being hostile or has taken a hostile stance against you? Let's jump in. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at, and, and this is by, you know, you want to call it divine providence, I would agree. It's incredible, the the synchronicity, I'll call it synchronicity, aka divine providence. The synchronicity is, is dazzling because The the Jewish source that we're going to be using for tonight's class is from a story in this week's Torah portion. Yes, let me explain. For uh, 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 Give me a moment to explain. Every single week, there is a section of the Torah, of the Bible, of the five books of Moses. There's a section of Torah that's read in synagogues around the world. 53 chapters, 53 sections For about 52 weeks. I know you're wondering about the math. Don't worry. Sometimes we combine a few. Whatever. We figure it out. Every week is a Torah portion. This week the Torah portion is Vayishlach. And it deals with the Torah portion that that will be at the core and the crux of tonight's lesson. The story is taking place. the, the, The drama is taking place with Jacob. Our patriarch Jacob. Jacob is the third of three patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob has a twin brother. He's a twin, but they're not, not, nothing uh, alike, right? He, they're twins, but they are very, very different. And the reality is that there's a lot of tension between Jacob and his brother, his twin brother, Esau. Why? 34 years prior, Jacob had taken the blessings from, that his father had earmarked for Esau. He went in. Snuck in and got the blessings. That's a larger story. We're going to leave that for now. At that time, having discovered Jacob's taking of his blessings, Esau vowed to take revenge and to kill Jacob at the earliest opportunity. So what does Jacob do? Upon, being, uh, uh, upon finding out about his brother's, his twin brother's plan, he splits town. He takes off. He bounces at a dodge. And he heads out. For 34 years. 34 years later, he is now on his way back home, back to the land of Israel, and he discovers, much to his consternation, that his brother Esau is, knows that he's coming, is headed toward him with 400 armed men. 400 men comprising a small army. Can you imagine how distressed Jacob is? And it's, just, it's not just my uh, pontification, The Torah says, Vayitzah, he was distressed. "Va'yitzar Yaakov, Ma'od. Jacob was very distressed about this. So what does he do? He's he's headed one way. He's headed home. His brother's coming out with 400 armed men. He's very distressed, is Jacob. He decides to prepare for this encounter in three ways. Let's take a quick look at what our sages say about this. It's from the verses, but this is put in a very... um, very clear fashion. All right. Let's, um, let's ask Dr. Maxey, please, if you don't mind to unmute and read text number two.
1: Jacob prepared himself for a three pronged response, a prayer, a gift and armed struggle.
0: Thank you. The Midrash and it's, Pulled straight from the verses, the Midrash consolidates Jacob's response into three prongs, a three-pronged, three-pronged response, not attack, but response. He prayed, he was prepared for armed struggle, and he gave a gift. So let me break this down. So number one is he prayed to God. Yeah, number one, he prayed to God. He said, God, protect me. You promised me years ago you would protect me. You know, deliver now, please, and you know, I'm humbled uh, for all the gifts that I've had, but please grant this one request for protection, et cetera. So he prays. Number two, he divides the camp, his camp, his people, his family, his possessions, into two camps. He divides it into, why? The reasoning is, if Esau and the army attack one, at least the other can escape. So he's prepared for the worst. He's prepared to be decimated and routed, but at least half of the family and the stuff will, will survive. So that's one preparation. That's the second preparation that he makes. The third thing he does is, he sends wave after wave of gifts. And these gifts came in the form of animals. I guess that was the currency of the time. He sends animals, not just some animals. I think we did the math at Daily Power Parsha. I think we got 550 animals. Is that correct? Does that sound right? 550? I think that was the number we got to. An exceptionally large amount of animal gifts or gifts of animals that he sends to his brother now and he sent them wave after wave not just one shot but one wave and then the next wave and then the next wave and then the next wave and the next wave and so he was just just loading his brother up and this was ahead of his approach he sent these animal, these gifts ahead of him and he said to each of the groups to each of the waves say that this is a gift from your brother jacob and jacob your servant your servant is behind us and he's excited to meet you that's kind of the, uh, the, the language that each wave of gift was meant to convey. And when he got, when, and indeed, when Jacob approaches, so Jacob bows down seven times in front of his brother Esau. So now let's pause for a moment. Let, let's, let's just take stock of this story for a second. Can you imagine how Jacob must have been feeling? Right? It probably didn't feel good to have to, to butter up and to try to placate his brother. It probably was annoying that he had to act Uh, so humbly and give all these gifts not that he had to but that you know this was an approach that might have bothered him but Jacob did it anyway and why did he do so let me explain he did so because of what we said all the way back in lesson one if you recall then we talked about the fact that everything ultimately is in God's hands but the way God designed the world is that God sends the blessing but wants us to do the work On our side, God wants us to make the vessel and the vehicle and the channel through which his blessing can flow. In other words, God says, I want to do a miracle for you, but give me an alibi. Give me a way to make it not look like a miracle. Jacob knew this. Of course he knew this. He's Jacob, right? He's Jacob. Jacob knew this. Jacob prayed to God. He also prepared, God forbid, for the worst because you got to prepare on the ground. But then what did he do? To channel God's blessing. Because God could say no, right? Sometimes God says no. So if God said no, then he plans for the worst case scenario, splits his camp. But if God says yes, he needs to create a channel through which that blessing will flow. What is the channel? He's giving gifts. Yes, he is engaging in what we might call diplomacy. And he's engaging in what we might call an act of, I don't know of of a better word, act of appeasement, diplomacy, gift-giving, buttering up, smearing, if you will, call it whatever you want. That's what he's doing. Why? He believes, the gift is the, he believes the blessing is going to come from God. The salvation is from God. But he's got to do the work on the ground because God said. Is he resentful? No, this is the way it works. What? Are we resentful for going to work? You got to go to work. to earn money. It comes from God. But we got to work. That's just the system. It's the way it works. This is what Jacob was thinking. So he sent the gifts. So what happened? At the end, Esau loved the gifts. He was impressed by the gifts. Yeah, that's his love language, by the way. Gifts. He loved the gifts. So he got the gifts, and he was impressed. He was so impressed that he decided to make up with Jacob right then and there. Let's take a look at the way the Torah describes the narrative of this meeting. Text number three. Text number three. Let's ask uh, um Let's ask Bill. Bill, can you please read text number three from Genesis
3: 33 4? Ezra ran toward Jacob and embraced him. He fell on Jacob's neck and kissed him, and they wept.
0: Instead of fighting. What's going on? Oh, they're hugging. They're kissing. They're crying. Oh, it's beautiful. What a what a dramatic twist. Oh. The biblical story. You know, all the good plot lines are in Torah. This is a wonderful plot line. Crisis averted, right? Oh, it's amazing. We thought it was going to go terrible. And it ends, it ends with a hug and a kiss and tears of joy and wonderful reconciliation. Amazing. Gavaldic. And what brings it about? What brings it about? It's Jacob's. Jacob's, uh, the gifts were a big piece of it. Of course, God's blessing. Yeah, obviously. But on the ground, it was Jacob's efforts. Jacob's diplomacy worked. Now, here's my, here's, here's my question. Now, did Jacob's diplomacy, did Jacob's efforts convert Esau into a permanent ally? No. <laughs> no. It's not like Esau was never unhappy with Jacob at, at, you know, for, you know, forever, you know, for all time. No. I, in fact, this is indicated in the Torah scroll itself in a very unusual way, with a very unusual feature. So the Hebrew word, vayishakehu, which is translated in our text as, and he kissed him. I'm going to pull up the screen again so you can all see what I'm talking about. So I'm going to move my mouse in rapid motion underneath that Hebrew word, vayishakehu. In the biblical, in the Bible, in the actual Torah scroll, this word, one, two, three, four, five, six, all six letters have a dot over the letter. One dot over each of the letters. Now, if you know a little thing about Torah scrolls, you know how highly unusual that is. There are no dots in the scroll. There are dots when you print a chumash, when you print the Hebrew version of the Bible so that the reader can know how to read it, but in the Torah scroll you don't have any punctuation, any vowelization you don't have any cantillation marks, the musical notes, none of that stuff. Garnish, nothing. You just have letters, and that's it. And typically run on sentences. I mean, not run just a, blo- a block of, a block of writing. But in this case, and he kissed him, there are dots over every single one of those letters. Six letters of that word, and he kissed him. Six dots. What's the message? Take a look at text number four. The Sifri writes the following. I'm going to read this one. Sifri says, the Torah features dots over the words, and he kissed him. Let's, over the word. In Hebrew, it's one word. In English, it's three words. All right, Over that word in Hebrew, and he kissed him. Vayishakeu, there's dots. Why? Listen to this. This is because Esau did not kiss Jacob wholeheartedly. Now, that's one opinion. Rabbi Shimbay ben Yochai, the Rashbi said, it is an established fact that Esau hates Jacob. Halacha, he says. Halacha, you know what halacha means? It's the law. It's an established fact. It's a known fact. We know that Esau hates Jacob. Nevertheless, says the Rashbi, Rabbi Shimba Yochai, his compassion was moved at that time, and he kissed him wholeheartedly. Now, listen to this. Can you imagine two sages, three, uh, two opinions, or two sages, yeah, so multiple opinions? I know it's shocking, but nonetheless, we have two opinions. There's, the two opinions are, let's just break this down. Opinion number one, that's paragraph number one, is that it was not a wholehearted kiss. He wasn't... He, there was reconciliation, but he wasn't totally whole. He wasn't totally on board. The second opinion says no. It was wholehearted at that time, at that moment. Notice that 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 uh, disclaimer. At that time, his compassion was moved, and he kissed him wholeheartedly. That only means that at that time. In other words, according to both opinions, whether or not he kissed them wholeheartedly in the moment, the bottom line is it was only for that moment. This evokes, this expresses, the incredibly daring approach of Jacob and let me break this down so it's absolutely crystal clear my goal is 100% clarity that everybody's on board with me so listen I'm going to try to say this as clear as possible Jacob knew that Esau was a sworn enemy Jacob knew that Esau might always be his sworn enemy but Jacob had one agenda and you know what that agenda was a peaceful passage through that land are you with me that was the agenda. And Jacob knew to achieve that on the ground, the best approach would be not to pick up a sword, not to pick up a gun, not to pick up a social media account and cancel, but to send gifts and appease. Are you with me on that? Crystal clear? The goal was, the. you know, sometimes we're, we're, we're so, uh, I'm, in, uh, I'm indignant and I have to say something and blah, blah, blah. And, and we end up losing. We might win the battle and lose the war. And, and we, might, we might win the argument, but lose the, the, the core interest. What is the interest? What is the position that we have here? The position for Jacob it was clear what his position was. He needed to get through that piece of land where his brother was blocking safely. He did what was needed. Now, is it groveling? Is it a weakness? Not to Jacob. Jacob knew that God's in control. He has to do what he has to do on the ground to get through that. He demonstrated the art of diplomacy, the art of 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 um, um, of dealing on the ground with uh, with someone who might otherwise be hostile. how to to, to work with somebody to get what you want from them. Even if it's only in the moment, even if later on they might regret it or later on they might, you know, still not be so happy. It doesn't matter. I got got what we needed for the safety of my family, for the safety and the future of the Jewish people. That's what he got. In other words, we'd call that a victory for Jacob. What happens if he comes out guns blazing? What happens if he comes out, oh, you're going to fight with me, I'm going to fight with you. God knows what what might have happened. He took an approach that was rational and reasonable. He worked with what he got, and he got the results that he needed. All right, Um, let's jump into, Tom, I see you have your hand up. Jump in.
2: Would you mind going back and showing the particular phrase and the six dots? I don't see it in the text. The
0: dots are, yeah. Unfortunately, and and I'm I'm a little baffled by the lack of the dots in this context because the whole point is the dots, but uh, the dots don't don't appear here. Um, the word the word is right here. Kehu. I'm putting my mouse slowly around it. That's the word, the six letter word Kehu. but you're not going to see dots here. For what I, th- these are only the vowels all you see here there's a dot above the shin just to indicate it's a shin and not a sin but that's a vowel dot in the, in the, in the actual biblical in the Torah scroll text there's actually incredibly dots and the dots indicate that there's something behind the surface it's not, not, not everything is as, as it appears it appears that Jacob that, that Esau kissed him and he loved him uh, it's a little qualified with the dots Either it wasn't wholehearted, even at the moment, or it was wholehearted, but just for the moment. But my point is that either way, whether it wasn't wholehearted or it was wholehearted for that moment, either way, victory was achieved. Mission successful. Or as they used to say in Little Einsteins. Little Einsteins? Little Einstein, yeah. Anybody with me at Little Einsteins? No Little Einsteins fans? No, Really, I'm shocked. No one? No one wants to admit to it? All right. Half of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Little Einsteins was this thing. All right, doesn't matter. Um, Here's the deal. Uh, Mission completion is what they used to say when they would finish their mission. Mission completion. If if my memory serves me correct, it's been a little while. You know, whatever. The point is that it worked. It was successful. Mission completion. All right. Yes.
1: When Sadat was coming uh, to meet with Menachem Begin. We know Menachem Begum knew Torah and he did David. He also sent gifts and had snipers on all the rooftops because you had every dignity on the tarmac and they didn't really know what was going to come off the plate. Right. He knew this passage, and that's why he did it that way.
0: Yep, yeah, yeah. I will tell you I will tell you that thank you for sharing that. Powerful story. I will tell you that every time in history, and I can't say every time, but many times throughout our history, when situations like this have come up, the go-to story as a template for a healthy Jewish response is how Jacob navigated the Esau conflict, how he navigated the Esau um, uh, meeting. That becomes a template, as we'll see soon. Beautiful text about how that becomes a, a, a model for how to respond. Um, Ray, did you want to jump in?
1: Yes, I do. Um,
0: First of all, hold on, hold on. Before you say, Ray, it's great to see you. And yes. love seeing you and good health. All right.
1: Thank you. Uh, I'm not sure it's this story, but I thought it is, that actually Esau bit him, that he bit his neck. And it was like, there, is that not true? There
0: is a tradition... There is one opinion in the Midrash that says that Isa tried to bite him, but he wasn't successful. But again, different... Di- uh, see, three Jews, three opinions. That's the third opinion. But, and that's, that's also hinted by the dots according to that other opinion, that he, that he bit him, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different type of... But we're going to stick with these two and draw a lesson from it. Again, there's many shiv and Torah. Torah has 70 facets. So we're going to stick with, with, with these two opinions. And the two opinions are that he kissed them, either not wholeheartedly or only wholeheartedly for the moment. Either way, it doesn't matter. Jacob got what he needed from, the, from that experience, from that encounter, and he got through safely. And I just mentioned before that, this, th- 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 that, that, that throughout our history, Jews have often turned to this story as a template for how to respond? I want to share my screen with you once again. You have it in your books as well. But take a look at this beautiful um, midrash. I think it's the oh from Nachmanides, but quoting the midrash text number five, page number one twenty one. Here we go. The midrash relates, says Ramban Nachmanides, the midrash relates that when Rabbi Yanai, oh let, let me pause for a moment. Who is Rabbi Yanai? Rabbi Yanai was. A rabbi of a Talmudic scholar, Talmudic sage, who lived in the third century of the Common Era. He lived in the, in the 200s. Okay? So, and Rabbi Yanni had lots of dealings with the Roman government. You know, the Roman Empire was, the, the Romans were controlling uh, where the Jews lived, so there was a lot of negotiation. So, when Rabbi Yanni, the major says that when Rabbi Yanni would set out for a meeting, listen to this, with the Roman government, He would first, before he headed to that meeting, he would first read the passage in the Torah regarding Jacob and Esau. The sages had a tradition that this passage was a guide for our exile. You see that? How did it engage in relations with a possibly hostile force? This is the template, Jacob and Esau. Therefore, when Rabbi Yane would visit the rulers of Rome for communal issues, he would consult this passage to follow the advice of the wise Jacob. It is indeed appropriate, says Nachmanides, for all generations to study his approach, Jacob's approach, and to adopt it in actual practice. Now, what, which part of the approach was he so was Rabbi Yanai so enthralled with? Which part part of the approach are we meant to use as a template for all, as Ramban says, all generations? Which part? The prayer, the preparing for the worst, the diplomacy, all of the above? I would say all of the above. But one big piece of that is the diplomacy. One big piece of that is the acts of appeasement. One big piece of that is navigating with gloves, with kid gloves the situation. No need to To do something that causes a powder keg to explode. No reason to make things worse. Just to make a point. Just to get something off your chest. Just because it's a chutzpah. How dare they? They need to know. We got to be smart about this. Jacob was smart. He prayed to God on his own. He divided the camp on his own. What did he do in front of Esau? He sent him gifts. He didn't send him a letter, a hallmark card, and I've seen this in the swords. It says, "Ha ha! I got the blessings." Right? Take the L. He didn't say that, right? Okay, I was kidding. That's not a hallmark card, right? But that's not what Jacob says to Esau. He doesn't say, "Ho ho! I've been enjoying the blessings for 34 years. How's it going without the blessings?" That's not what he did. He didn't provoke him. What he did was he gave him gifts and bowed down to him and called himself your servant, that's what he did. Why? Strategically. Strategically to get what he needed from that encounter. This becomes a template that has been followed throughout Jewish history. And I want to share with you the power of persuasion and influence over force. There's a story, countless stories, we're going to focus on several of them in tonight's class. So, number one is a story with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The same rabbi that said before that Isa did kiss him wholeheartedly, but only for that moment. Okay, that same Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the great Rashbi, he had a very complicated relationship with Rome. Super complicated. Talk about a complicated dynamic that was a. He hid in a cave with his son for 13 years because the Romans were trying to kill him. Do you know this? The Rashbi hid in a cave for 13 years? Yeah, okay. Anyway, he had a very complicated relationship with, uh, with Rome. At the same time, he used to go on diplomatic missions to Rome. Take a look at text number six. Take a look at text number six. I'm pulling this up on the screen so we can all see this together. All right, let's ask Susan, Susan Baker. Please read uh, text number six. Take it away. Can you hear me? Yes.
2: The Roman government once issued a decree that Jews may not observe Shabbat, circumcision, and family purity. The Jews said to themselves, who should go to Rome to solicit annulment of the decree? Let Rabbi Shimon Boch Yochai go, for he is experienced in miracles.
0: So, Thank you. So what happens here is that we have a decree from Rome against Shabbat, circumcision, and family purity. And so, who's the one that's sent to go to annul the decree to try to diplomatically uh, negotiate here, Rabbi Shmuel Yochai? What happens at the end? Let me tell you the story. You're gonna love this story. So, first of all, there was a rabbi, a Jew, who who infiltrated Rome, to and pretended not to be Jewish to try to annul the decree in a very creative way. He said to the he said to some government officials, he says, "I don't get it." Let the Jews do this. It only hurts them. Circumcision will make them weaker. The laws of family purity will make sure they have less kids. And Shabbat means they're less wealthy. They're not working a day of the week. It's, why do you care? Why, this is good. This is good for the Romans. It's bad for the Jews. Let them keep these mitzvot. Let them not work on Shabbos. Let them circumcise themselves. Let them keep the laws of family purity. It's good. Well, and, and for temporarily they, they, they suspended, they halted the decrees. But then they found out that this guy, that this supposed, you know, you know, clever guy was actually Rabbi Ruvain of the Jews. And they're like, ah, all right. So they brought back the decree. So finally, the Rashbi goes crazy story. The Rashbi, I'm calling him Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar or Ben, same thing, Aramaic Hebrew Bar Yochai Rashbi. It's the acronym of his name. The Rashbi goes to Rome, and and he meets the emperor. Or something happened to the emperor's daughter. She got sick. The Rashbi healed her. It's a crazy story, wild story. The the emperor was so impressed that he helped his daughter, and he annulled the decree. You know what the message is? The same Rashbi, who's a little cynical before, he was a little cynical. He said that Isa didn't really. I, he said he kissed him wholeheartedly, but only in that moment. But not, you know, it wasn't a long-term thing. Oh, I'm sorry. And the same Rashbi said, Halacha, Esav, Sonez, es Yaakov. He says it's an established fact. It's a truism. It's a truth. It's an axiom that Esau is a hater of Jacob. Hater's going to hate. But you know what? He still went to Rome. You're, the Roman Empire is the sentence of, uh, of Edom, of, uh, of, of of Esau, of Esau. So, the Rashbi, who said that Esau, that Esau is a hater, he himself goes to Esau, Esau's descendants, to, to the road, to the Roman emperor, to another decree. What's the message? You can believe that they hate, they're an anti-Semite, but you can still persuade. We believe in the power of persuasion. At the end of the day, people are people. At the end of the day, you make it worse someone's while. <laughs> ah, it's fine, they'll overlook something, whatever. The key is, and this is, this is a big idea, and, and it's not always going to work, and it's not always the right approach, but very often it is, and very often we make the mistake of becoming so indignant and table-pounding that we end up hurting ourselves. We end up creating worse enemies, and we push someone into a corner to dig their heels in so they'll never get out, as opposed to giving them an option to get out of their own hate. Are you with me on this? Does this make any sense? Yes, I think it makes a lot of sense. I'm not the only one that thinks it makes sense. So far, we've seen Jacob thinks it makes sense. Rabbi Yana thinks it makes sense. <laughs> the Ramban says it makes sense. The Rashbi thinks it makes sense. All right, so we have a lot, of, a lot of, we're in good company if we think this approach can make a lot of sense. Now, throughout medieval times, throughout the Middle Ages, Jews in Europe in Central Europe, had a lot of challenges. A lot of of navigating hostile governments and establishments and rulerships and emperors and holy emperors of Rome, Batman and all this stuff. It was a lot of navigation. A lot of navigation. And there was, in many communities, at many times, there was a job almost of one individual who was called the and these people their job was to appeal to the ruling powers to advocate in a diplomatic way as ambassadors of of the Jewish people of the Jewish community to whatever whoever was in charge these were people whose job it was literally to engage in diplomacy these were known as shtadlanim you know the word hishtadlut? You ever hear that word hishtadlut? That means like making an effort, putting in you know, effort on the ground. Anyway, shtadlanim were those that put in this effort of diplomacy, engagement, you know, conversation, appeasement, etc. They were also, they're also known sometimes in a derogatory way, which I'll explain in a moment, as court Jews. Have you ever heard that term? Court Jews. Uh, Oh, he was a court Jew. It's a court Jew. These were Jews who would go to the court or the courts of the kings and the emperors to beseech on behalf of the of the Jewish community. In your books on page 123, you can open it up and reference it. There's a figure 4.1, famous Jewish advocates. In Central Europe in the Middle Ages, you can look at the bios, look at the cities, and look at what they did. I'll put, pull it up on the screen also. Why not? Hey, screen share is free on Zoom. Yeah, Jewish advocates in Central Europe, 1500 to 1800, Hanover, Worms, Heidelberg, Württemberg, Prague, Vienna. You see the names here. I want to focus on the first name here on the left. Is my, is my um, does the arrow get larger? Uh, yeah, is it that, is that a large arrow over there? You guys see that? Doesn't matter. Okay, whatever. Joseph, Yosef of Rosheim. Yosef of Rosheim, he was a rabbi, and one of the shtadlonim, somebody who advocated on behalf of the community. He advocated on behalf of which community? The community, the Jewish community in Germany. And he was active in the 1500s, the first half of the 16th century, 1500. To around 1550 is when he was active, and which court, which court did he show up at? The court of the Holy Emperor of Rome Maximilian, the first, and his grandson and successor Charles V. Maximilian the first and Charles V. That's who this Joseph of Roshheim went to and appealed to and, and sought appeasement from. Now, I need to share this. Charles, these were no Jew lovers. Maximilian I, Charles V, are you kidding me? These, lo- these, these individuals didn't love Jews. Charles V was also a grandson on his mother's side. He was a grandson of Maximilian I on his, on his father's side. On his mother's side, he was a grandson of, drum roll please, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella of Spain. And you might recognize those names. They're famous in history. But they're also famous for signing off on the expulsion of Jews from the entirety of Spain in 1492, on the ninth day of Av. Unironically. On the 19th of Av, sorry, the ninth of Av, tishubav, the ninth of Av in the year 1492. So there was no love lost there for the Jews. These these were people that didn't love Jews. Yet, and this is huge, Rabbi Yosef of Roshheim worked relentlessly for decades to advocate for the Jewish community in Germany. And he went where? To these individuals who were in charge. He advocated. He put in time and effort and money into this. And he was successful. By and large, he was successful. I want to share with you. And he wrote a book about it. He has a memoir. He writes about his own personal... Yosef of Rosham the, from, the, from the 1500s. He wrote about this. And, and I'll share with you what, what, one such recollection. Alright, let's do this. This is text number 7. Take a look. In 1531. This is his own personal recollection. This is unbelievable. In 1531. The denouncers. Who are the denouncers? Look, we don't have a lot of detail outside of this account. But the haters. Whoever was, you know, uh, a, against Jews. The denouncers once again hounded the Emperor Charles V while he was in Belgium and Holland, lands uninhabited by Jews. There's so much I need to explain here. At that point in 1531, no Jew was, by law, Jews were not permitted to live in Belgium and Holland. I know it sounds crazy, maybe not so crazy. Jews have been expelled from lands, uh, historically from lands uh, around the globe. This was what was going on in 1531. There were no Jews in Belgium and Holland. So when Charles V was spending some time, he had a vast area of land. When he was spending time in Belgium and Holland without any Jews there, well, the denouncers had his ear. Listen to this. Many requested that I, Yosef of Roshheim, travel to those lands where there were no other Jews to oppose the accusers with the help of God. I was at the court of the exalted emperor for four months from the first of Adar until the first of Sivan. Pursuing the interests of the Jewish communities. Although Rothroyd, who's Rothroyd? Um, we don't know. Uh, the, the great historians are not sure. There are some, uh, some opinions as to who it might be. I have one source that says it might have been. It might have been the mercenary Martin Van Rosem, who was a mercenary who might have had an anti-Jewish agenda as well, or he might have been caught up in, in this mercenary's crosshairs, whatever it is. But we don't know exactly, although Rothroyd R- uh, attempted to swallow me alive and to bring about my demise, God in his great mercy sent his messenger and saved me from his hands and from all those who sought to harm me. Let's continue inside. At that time, says Yosef of Rosheim, I had an audience with the emperor in his private chamber. I spoke to him for as long as I needed and he responded sympathetically. During this period, when I had free time and was secluded in my room, I authored a book entitled The Sanctified Path. All right, my friends, this is what's going on. This is what's going on. And uh, what picture do we have here? What is this picture of? An edict prohibiting the Jews from lending and changing money. All right. I don't know that we need to show that right now. Uh, it just caught my eye over here. All right, back to, back to our narrative. What's happening here is we have a guy who is the advocate for the Jewish-German community. And he's going to the emperor, he's going to meet with the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V in a land in which there's no Jewish community, there are no fellow Jews. It's dangerous, it's treacherous. He's meeting with pretty much a Jew hater, more or less. I mean, this guy, oh, I probably should have explained. Charles V was not only the Holy Roman Emperor, he was also the king of Spain. And you know what was going on in 1531? You probably know what's going on in 1531 in Spain, yeah? You guys know? Something called the Inquisition, where Jews are being murdered, found out, yeah, yeah, Inquisition. They were inquiring who was really Jewish under the cover. Yeah, okay. So he's presiding over murders on some level, mur- the, m- executing Jews in Spain. And yet he's meeting with this Jew in Belgium and Holland who's negotiating on behalf of the German Jewish community. It's crazy. But it's, it was effective and it was what needed to be done. Is there another approach? Should he have come out guns blazing? I mean, it wasn't even possible then. I mean, that wasn't a thing. But either way, he understood that this was an an approach that could be effective. And this is what happened. It was effective. And he got the result in this situation. Now, this shows the power of of a strategic diplomatic approach. Is it always going to work? Of course not. We have many examples where it doesn't work. One famous example is back to 1492. Back to the expulsion of Jews from Spain. I don't know if you know this, but Rabbi Don Yitzchak Abarbanel, right? You know the song that was made about him, ba-ba-ba-ba. Aba, 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 Joking. Anyway, the Barbanel, the great Spanish um, uh, scholar and sage and advisor to the king. He was very wealthy. He had three meetings with King Ferdinand of Spain. Three meetings to appeal to him. After the edict was signed to reverse, to undo the expulsion, before Jews were kicked out, he met with the king three times to try to put the brakes and undo this horrific decree for the Jewish people that disrupted so many countless lives, hundreds of thousands of lives, and and just totally decimated Jewry over there. He tried to stop it. It didn't work. didn't work. He failed, and the expulsion went along. Some say it was because of... Of Queen, uh, Queen Queen Isabella, that she just she told her husband, don't listen to the Jew. Some say it was Torquemada. You know, Thomas de Torquemada, the uh, famous inquisitor, you guys know about Torquemada? Yeah. Some say that he busted in in middle of um, of an impassioned plea from the Barbanel. and he said to, he said to the king, Judas sold him referring to Christ. For 30 pieces of silver, and now you want to sell them again. He was basically saying, don't, don't let the Jews, yeah, don't let the Jews off the hook. That was his, that, some say that's what Turkemata uh, said. Uh, whether that happened or not, it's unclear, because from the Jewish source, the Abar Benel writes about his efforts and his failure. He doesn't include that piece of it. There's a legend about that statement from Turkemata, but we don't have this in our own sources, so who's to know what exactly happened and why his uh, attempts failed? But nonetheless, the point here is that an honest appraisal, an honest report is that sometimes, oftentimes it worked. Sometimes, sometimes this approach didn't work. We're not always guaranteed success. But what we are seeing is a bit of a pattern here, and that is that when you're dealing with somebody who more or less is a hater, more or less is, a, is somebody that's, you know could be considered your enemy, do you choose to go all out and wage a war or a more diplomatic approach. And it might feel like tail between the legs. It might feel like, you know, a, a weak approach. But it's not. It's a smart approach. It can be. Not only, it can be a very smart approach. Very calculated, strategic approach. To get what you want, without any shots fired. All it costs is a little uh, smearing. That means a little greasing the wheels. And you're done. Yeah, there's a, there's a benefit to this approach. Jacob knew this. The great Rabbi Shun Yochai knew this. Rabbi Akiva knew this. Rabbi Yanei knew this. Rabbi Yosef of Roshim knew this. The greats of the greats knew this, and they did it, and so did so many others throughout our history. Now, i got to tell you a secret. i got to tell you a secret. The premise of this approach, the premise of this approach that with the right positioning, you can get what you want either, even out of someone who has expressed hostility towards you or toward your position in previous times, that, that notion is predicated on a simple belief, and I'll try to say this as clearly as possible. The belief is that people are very complicated. <laughs> that's, the, that's the truth. People are complicated. What I mean is that even as someone spews hate, they might not really believe that fully and truly and deeply. It might just be something they're saying or something they're doing for whatever reason, but it could be there's still something, there's still a part of them that you can appeal to. Are you with me on this? The the notion that someone is wholly and purely evil, no conversation to be had, it's going to be a waste of time, it's a very extreme and rare case. Most of the time, even someone who said something or done something that we might consider to be hateful toward Jews still has another piece to them. This is not just theory, it's backed by science. I want to share with you, and I don't want to derail the class by getting too much into the, the science and the, the, brain, the brain science behind this because it's, it's a very interesting psychological area of, of, of study. But I want to share with you two quick texts. And we're also going to talk about Mel Gibson. Right? Adina Malka, you mentioned Mel Gibson before. Now I'm going to mention Mel Gibson. You might not be happy with what I say or with what the... I'm just going to report what the text says. You might not be happy with it. Nonetheless, I think it's important to mention. So let's do this right now. Take a look on the screen or in your books. Oh, that's the famous depiction of of the Abarbanel pleading his case bowing forward to the king, and um, um, What's it called again? Uh, blasting him. Okay, here we go. Text 8A, cognitive diversity. Listen to this. This is from neuroscientist David Eagleman. Very respected fellow in the field. Brains are like representative democracies. They're built of multiple overlapping experts who weigh in and compete over different choices. There is an ongoing conversation among the different factions in your brain, each competing to control the single output channel of your behavior. By the way, first of all, this is very Tanya-like. This is, if you study Tanya, this is like, wow, this is straight out of Tanya. Anyway, when the hostess at a party offers chocolate cake, he gives the example. You find yourself in the th- on the horns of a dilemma. Some parts of your brain have evolved to crave the rich energy source of the sugar, and other parts care about the negative consequences, such as the health of your heart. Part of you wants the cake, and part of you tries to muster the fortitude to forego it. The final vote of the parliament determines which party controls your action, that is, whether you put your hand up or out. As the French essayist Michel de Montaigne puts it, there is as much difference between us And ourselves, as there is between us and others. In other words, we don't have a single opinion inside of ourselves. Our own brains are very split. Welcome to the real world. It's not so clear cut, right? We have this idea and that idea inside our own brains. Conflicting ideas. And he cites the example of Mel Gibson. Text AP. And again, I want to be very clear here. Just because this is in the book, just because this is a text, doesn't mean we have to buy it. Or just because, sorry, David Eagleman says it doesn't mean we have to buy it and agree with it 100%. But there's a point that's brought out that I want to focus on in a moment. Returning to Mel Gibson and his drunken tirade, we can ask... We can ask, at least, whether there is such a thing as true colors. We have seen that behavior is the outcome of the battle among internal systems. To be clear, I'm not defending Gibson's despicable behavior. But I am saying that a team of rivals' brain can naturally harbor both racist and non-racist feelings. Alcohol is not a truth serum. Instead, it tends to tip the battle toward the short-term, unreflective faction, which has no more or less claim than any other faction to be the true one. What's interesting about this, and again, you can choose to apply it if you'd like to Mel Gibson or not. I have no agenda. I have no skin in the game. I have no dog in this fight. I I don't, I don't, I'm not weighing on a Mel Gibson. I think it's a fascinating idea that people can harbor conflicting sentiments. They could harbor some hateful and prejudiced sentiments and some not, and, and both might be true. Just like we might want and not want chocolate cake, we might feel the notion of, you know, that bias is not right and not okay and still feel also parts of us that tend to be a little biased and a little bit prejudiced. That doesn't make it okay. The point is, human beings are complicated. Why am I bring this up? What, to, to, to justify Gibson? No. I'm trying to, the third time I've said this. No, that's not the point. Here's the point. The point is that when you're dealing with somebody who has said or done something that you deem to be hateful to, to Jews, anti-Semitic, the idea that we're, that, we're, that we're pushing forth in this class is the idea of first and foremost working in a diplomatic Way to influence as opposed to estrange the other. How to influence, how to get their ear to influence as opposed to create a distance. And you might say, but how to influence an anti-Semite? Aren't they beyond repair? Aren't they beyond any hope? To this is what I just quoted with Eagleman. And that is that, there, that there, we, we, we might choose to believe that there is a part of that person, there's a part of their brain, a part of their inner being that gets that that is wrong, that gets that hateful rhetoric is wrong and prejudice is wrong. Again, not letting anyone off the hook, right? Consequences should be consequences. But, but, can we try to reason? Can we try to influence? Can we try to educate? In most cases, the answer is a resounding yes. This is Jacob's first approach This, perhaps, in many cases, ought to be our first approach. It's very tempting to call out and boycott and cancel the one who you think is a hater. It's very tempting. It's very, um, it feels good. It feels good to be indignant. It feels good to say, how dare you? How dare you? You're wrong, right? You're terrible. It feels good to say that. It's a release. It's a release. I don't want to take away anybody's fun. But you know what? It may not be true. They may not be wholly evil. W-H-O-L-Y, holy, completely evil. Right? There may be something to communicate with and certainly it might not be helpful. We might be able to get more out of a diplomatic approach than a confrontational approach. If Rabbi Akiva had labeled the Roman government as pure evil that should never be talked to, what would have become of that decree? Yeah? If Jacob attacked Esau instead of sending gifts, what 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 would have happened? The approach that we've seen modeled in this lesson and modeled in our history is to recognize that people are complicated. People are very complicated. And you might just be able to appeal to part of them. that's a little bit more rational than the colors that they've shown previously. And when appealed to correctly, the beneficial side may come out. Now, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. All of this diplomacy and tiptoeing around Jew-haters yeah, all from history, talking about the times of the Roman Empire, the times of the Middle Ages. Are you kidding me, Rabbi, you're thinking? Of course they had a tiptoe. Of course they had to in diplomacy because Jews were weak then. We didn't have our own country. We didn't have our own army. We didn't have our own social media accounts. We didn't have a free country and a democracy. Of course they had to lobby. Of course there were court Jews, which is used as a pejorative. Today, amongst many, court Jews means the weak ones that have to appeal to and don't stand up for themselves. Of course we had to do that when we were weak, right? But you might be thinking today we're strong. Today we live in a free country. Today we can protest protest and demonstrate and cancel and boycott and all that stuff. So let's exercise the power that we have. Yeah, we must exercise the power that we have, you might be thinking. It's a reasonable argument and I hear you. So you're telling me that all the historical accounts that I've showed you from the Bible, from the Midrash, from the Talmud, from post-Talmudic times, it's all anecdotal, but it doesn't apply now. Now we have the power. We have to hold the power and hold people accountable, put their feet to the fire, and call out Pompidou for what he did wrong. That's what you're thinking. Now you're thinking that because I said it. So let's get back to our story with Pompidou. January, 1970. France announces, Pompidou announces that he's going to be selling the French-built Mirage 3 fighter jets. Not to Israel, that, that embargo is still on, but to Libya, a sworn enemy of Israel. Immediately, protests erupt. Pompidou, at some point, a month or two later, visits the U.S., and he's met with fierce protests. This, understandably, angers Pompidou. And I know what you're thinking. He deserves it. Let him be angry. Let it Face the music. You, you, so you, you cut off Israel and supply Libya? Take the heat, bro. You dish it, you gotta take it. You might be thinking that. You might be thinking that. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Let's take a look at some text here. The first text is from the New, from the New York Times. March 3rd, 1970. This is all, we're documenting the story historically, article by article. Text number nine, I'm going to read this. President Nixon made a hurried trip to New York yesterday to apologize to President Pompidou, who was angered by what he termed insults to himself and his wife during pro-Israeli demonstrations touched off by his state visit to the United States. The French president had been angered by a jostling that members of his party received from demonstrators from demonstrators in Chicago whose actions were marked by boos and angry cries and by what he viewed as acceptance of such hostile acts by the Chicago police. Pompidou is angry. He's incensed. Nixon has to apologize. And again, you might be thinking, good for you, Pompidou. You deserve it, you anti-Semite. You get what you 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 reap what you sow, you cut off Israel, you sell the the planes to uh, to to Libya, take take the heat, you deserve it. You might be thinking that. And I want to tell you that although that might feel good emotionally, it might feel good to vent, it might feel good to shout, it might feel good to wave, to shake your fist, but we gotta be smart, we gotta be strategic. And the question is, what is in the best interest of Jews and Israel? Not what feels Right. What's in the best strategic interest at that time? The Rebbe spoke, the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Brooklyn, New York, spoke directly about this. You will be shocked, maybe not by today's class, but but based on what we've heard so far, but you will be, I think, uh, getting a cold intro to this. You would be shocked by what the Rebbe says. I'm going to read this. This is a translation from what the Rebbe said in 1970 at that time, at the time of the protests. The public protests against the president of France angered French officials. This, listen to what the Rebbe writes, said, this blocked any lobbying efforts that French Jews might have been able to make to prevent or at least reduce French assistance to Arab countries that are hostile to Israel. What the Rebbe is saying is, the public protests, the public shouting, has effectively blocked any behind-the-scenes lobbying that was going to happen. Let's continue. The stated reason for these protests was to demonstrate that America is a democratic country and that American Jews are not cowardly. This is a worthwhile objective when Jewish lives are not at risk. However, when, in other words, you want, you want to come at it in, in, in a vacuum? Sure, but when Jewish lives are threatened with the sale of many military jets to Libya, we have two options. The Rebbe says, we can organize public protests or we can make every effort to either prevent or postpone the sale, reduce the number of jets sold, or to at least prevent prevail upon the French to send less effective planes. Such aims can only be achieved through quiet diplomacy. The proof, the Rebbe drops this bomb, the proof is that agreements of this nature have been reached in the past. The Rebbe doesn't specify in 1970 what he's referring to. He says this publicly in a printed talk with the transcript in English. He says the protests are hurting Jewish and Israeli interests. The public seem correct, sorry, the protests seem correct, but they're actually hurting the cause. It's backfiring. It's, it's, it's backfiring because at this point, the president is now no longer going to entertain the quiet backdoor negotiations of diplomacy. The public doesn't know what goes on behind closed doors, but the Rebbe drops that line. There have been deals in the past. What was the Rebbe referring to? During the embargo itself, France was still selling to Israel quietly. You didn't know that, did you? You didn't know that. The Rebbe knew that. The Rebbe was close with Israel. The Israel prime ministers and presidents reached out. We had it in a previous class. The first person of contact was the Rebbe sometimes. The Rebbe knew what was going on behind the scenes. The Rebbe said, You're ruining it by these protests. Yes, you have democratic right, no problem. Your incense, your anger, you want to show the. But you want to be effective in saving lives? Let's deal with diplomacy. One year later, the Rebbe explained publicly what he was talking about. Text 10b. When Mr. Pompidou, this is one year later now, when Mr. Pompidou visited the U.S., there were mass protests against him intended to intimidate France. This effort backfired. It can now be said, the Rebbe says, I can now reveal that despite the French embargo against selling arms to belligerents in the Middle East, the French president had allowed the sale of small arms and light weapons to Israel, items that can be sold without attracting publicity. You hear that line? That's a bombshell revelation. France had been selling arms to Israel on only Israel even during the embargo. However, as a result of the demonstrations, the approval for such sales was withdrawn. After some time, when he was no longer being disparaged, Pompidou, that is, he resumed dealing with Jews behind closed doors and reinstituted the small arms sales. He also arranged for 300 Jews to be able to leave Egypt. All of this was accomplished without demonstrations and without publicity. The Jewish media, that's Israeli media, was warned against disclosing any of this, and we only know of this from the non-Jewish press, uh, from the Gentile press. The conclusion we must draw from this case is that we do not influence anti-Semites by constantly yelling at them, you're an anti-Semite, you're a thief, you're a murderer. You want to shout? That's how you shout. That's not how you influence. Rather, engage them in diplomatic conversation. Listen to this. Listen to this last line. Although such individuals are well aware of what we think about them, they are nevertheless human beings and wish to behave like human beings. In other words, they may have shown some anti-Semitic tendencies, they may have acted in a way that you don't think is right, etc., etc., etc. You want results, oftentimes, not always, not, listen, there is no such rule that is hard and fast and, 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 and solid and, and, and immutable. Every rule has an exception. This is no exception, right? This rule is, is the same. There will be times in which you do need to take a strong and solid and no, whatever. But with Pompidou, The Rebbe clearly said that this effort backfired. Pompidou stopped selling small armaments to Israel. He got angry and it didn't work and it only took more time and more effort to get him back on track. And it ultimately backfired. There were were plans in place, there were people in place, there were diplomatic efforts in place and the big noise didn't ultimately benefit anyone on the ground. This is, yeah, this is, um, this is, a powerful statement of the Rebbe's perspective. I need to tell you one more story. Jesse Helms, you remember Jesse Helms? Senator from North Carolina, Jesse Helms? For years, for years, Jesse Helms was considered to be an anti Israel, to have an anti Israel position. He consistently voted against Israeli interests, he voted against all foreign aid to Israel, he sharply condemned Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982. He was considered to be the anti, one of the anti-Israel senators. Okay. Fast forward to 1984. 1984, President Reagan signs a proclamation declaring the Rebbe's birthday, the, he, the Rebbe's Hebrew birthday, as Education Day USA. Shocking, right? Maybe, you, maybe some of you know this. The, the, the President of the United States, along with both houses, signed into proclamation, proclaimed, that the Rebbe's birthday be Nash, uh, um, Education Day USA, and the rationale was because of the Rebbe's call for education and the Rebbe's value in education, not just Jewish education, mind you, but universal education for all children in the United States. Until this very day, by the way, all presidents since have proclaimed the Rebbe's Hebrew birthday, every year it changes, as Education Day USA. You can look it up. So 1984, the uh, Chabad in Washington, D.C., through a party, through a, a dinner, a bash, an event, Celebrating the proclamation of Education Day USA and the Rebbe's birthday. Great. Well, many, many uh, uh, um, politicians attended, including one such, Mr. Jesse Helms. Well, Alan Dershowitz, you know Alan Dershowitz? Yeah, okay. Alan Dershowitz gets wind that Jesse Helms was at this Chabad party, yeah, celebrating. Okay. He writes a letter, Alan Dershowitz. Writes, I heard this story from Alan Dershowitz myself. Alan Dershowitz wrote, he spoke at a a thing that I was at. Alan Dershowitz, yeah, sends a letter to the Rebbe saying, how dare you, essentially, how dare you honor Jesse Helms, who's a hater of Israel? The Rebbe replies in a letter saying, okay, time out. First of all, Chabad didn't honor Jesse Helms. Chabad was throwing an event and Jesse Helms showed up. It was open to politicians, and he showed up. So that's clarification number one. Number two, and most importantly, the Rebbe writes in the P.S. This is a classic Rebbe move. I'm telling, a classic move of the Rebbe, where the P.S., like yeah, the postscript is the bomb, the bombshell of the idea. Take a look at this. What the Rebbe writes in the P.S. to Alan Dershowitz, who's quetching about Jesse Helms being honored or at the event about Education Day USA in honor of the Rebbe. Okay, listen to this. 1984. Take a look at this postscript. will blow your mind. I'm going to read this. Uh, text 11. Okay, here we go. I trust, writes the Rebbe, you will agree that in regard to persons of influence, whether in Washington or elsewhere, the first objective should be to persuade and encourage such a person to use his influence in a positive way in, be- in behalf or on behalf of any and all good causes which are important to us. We should welcome every public appearance which lends public support to the cause, especially when there is a likelihood that it may be the forerunner of similar pronouncements in the future. I hope you're appreciating what the Rebbe is writing to Dershowitz. My experience with such people, though I have never pr- personally met the said person, Helms, has convinced me that politicians are. Ge- Listen to this line: politicians are generally motivated more by expediency than by conviction. Wow. Right. Has a a bigger truth ever been stated? Right. Politicians are motivated more by expediency than by conviction. In other words, their public pronouncements on various issues do not stem from categorical principles or religious imperatives. Hence, most of them, if not all, are subject, subject to change in their positions, depending on time, place and other factors. I believe, therefore, writes the rabbi to, to Dershowitz about Helms, that the proper approach to such persons by Jewish leaders should not be rigid. As a rule, it does no good to engage in a cold war, which may often turn into a hot war. Nor does it serve any useful purpose to brand one as an enemy or an anti-Semite, however tempting it is to do so, even if that person vehemently denies it. Maybe especially when they deny it. You deny it. For sure you're in a right? It can only be counterproductive, writes the Rebbe. On the contrary, ways and means should be found to persuade such a person to take a favorable stance, at least publicly. We haven't too many friends, and attaching labels, et cetera, will not gain us any. Instances abound where the approach advocated above produced good results. There is surely no need to point out to you That responsible Jewish leaders consistently cultivated good public relations. Indeed, even cordial relations with President Carter and his predecessors, going back to President Roosevelt, regardless of their sometimes openly negative feelings toward Jews and Jewish causes. The Rebbe says, what is the agenda? What's the objective? What's the best case scenario? To cancel Jesse Helms or to get Jesse Helms to support Israel? What's the best case scenario? B, to get Jesse Helms to be a supporter. Well, th- then don't cancel him. Don't, don't, don't smear him. Don't engage in some measure of talk, education, diplomacy, some sort of talk. By the way, Dershowitz, when I heard him speak by the Chabad, uh, by Chabad event. He spoke about this story, personal story. And he said he saw with his own eyes the most remarkable thing happened. What happened? Jesse Helms went from being one of the most anti-Israel senators to one of the biggest supporters in in the Senate. One of the biggest supporters in the Senate turned out to be Jesse Helms later on after 1984. Now, is it because of, 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 of his event with Chabad in 1984 on Education Day USA? Who knows? Who knows? The point is, though, that oftentimes the carrot works better than the stick. And we know this. It's like the famous parable with the sun and the wind. You know this one? The sun and the wind are talking about how to get the guy, the guy's walking with the jacket, and they're talking about how to get the guy to, um, to, ta- to influence him to take off the jacket, yeah? So the wind says, I'll show you, I'm going to blow, I'm going to blow the jacket off of him. So the wind starts blowing, what does the guy do? Puts on his jacket, even, pulls his jacket even tighter. Are you with me on this so far? The sun says, let me show you how I'm going to do it. The sun shines brightly, it's very hot, and what happens? The guy takes off his jacket. We can try with negativity, with anger, with angry rhetoric. And you know what? The anti-Semite, the the person who has exhibited some anti-whatever it is, might hold on stronger to that position. Shine a little light, a little advocacy, a little education, a little diplomacy. The next thing you know, you might be dealing with a friend and not an enemy. This has happened before. I have already in this class six, seven, eight, nine examples of this in the ancient history, as well as today. So let me sum up what we've learned today. Today we learned one approach to dealing with anti-Semitism head-on. It may not be our intuitive approach, but it's a very highly effective approach that has a long-standing place within Jewish tradition. We learned that oftentimes what feels good is not necessarily what's best for achieving the Jewish objective, or what's best for the Jewish community. While we might want to call out and cancel the the Esau's of the world, a more diplomatic effort is is very often more effective. So here are three practical takeaways. Number one, let's be slower to name and shame and demonize public figures. It's often better to work with them than to try to fight them. The same is true, number two, the same is true with our personal interactions, with people who've expressed anti-Semitic sentiments to us. Now, not always, again, every rule has its exception, this is no exception. Best ideal approach is to engage in real conversation. I I have to tell you that many of you have told me privately about your experience with anti-Semitism and how you then spoke with somebody who said a negative comment, who said a pejorative, who uttered a slur, and said, let me tell you why that's offensive. And was a, were able, you were able to see, to achieve some sort of breakthrough, some sort of understanding with that person. Not everyone that says something negative is purely and wholly evil, irredeemably evil. It's not the case. Human beings are complicated and they are pliable. <laughs> we can work with people, right? We know ourselves, right? We can, we can grow and learn. Best approach, ideally, is to engage in conversation and resisting the urge to vilify, cancel, and utterly condemn. Number three, and I just mentioned this, but I want to specify it. Let's recognize that people are not static. People are always changing. They're always growing. Everyone has the ability to change in the long term, if not the short term, or at least to adopt publicly a more peaceful, reconciliatory stance in the short term like Esau. He may not be a lifelong lover of his brother Jacob, but in the short term, he let him pass through peacefully, and that was a victory. I want to conclude this course with one final point. Give me another 60 seconds. The point goes back to the story of Purim. That's our go-to space. In every class we've mentioned that holiday, I want to end with this. Haman, in his lead-up to the decree against the Jewish people, Haman talked about the Jews in the following fashion. I'm going to share my screen and show you the text. The wicked Haman, I'm calling him wicked, right? I'm canceling him. Haman writes the following. There is, here we go. Haman told the king, There is one nation that is scattered and dispersed among the nations throughout all the countries of your empire. He referred to the Jews as scattered and dispersed. What does that mean, scattered and dispersed? The simple understanding is the Jews are infiltrating. They're everywhere. They're scattered and dispersed. They're everywhere. You got to root them out and get rid of them. That's a simple explanation. The deeper explanation is he was saying that why is it that the Jews are vulnerable? Because internally they're scattered and dispersed, because they are fragmented, because they are not on the same page. A people... Divided is a people that are not strong. A people divided, fall. United we stand, divided we fall. This is true in every nation, every people, every group, every family. Right? It's broken on the inside, one flick, and the whole thing shatters. This is what Haman says to the king. The Jews are vulnerable because they, inside their own tents, they are broken, They they are not unified. On a pragmatic level, divide and conquer. On a spiritual level, God's blessing exists in a place of peace. God blesses us when we get along with each other. Parents give whatever the kids want when they see the kids getting along. When the kids are fighting, parents are less likely to give the kids a treat. That's the way it is. It's a nat- natural thing. No different spiritually as well. Here's the point. We talk about today how to deal with the anti-Semite and how to uh, diplomacy and, 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 and education and advocacy and all that, and it's great. I want to end off with this one point. Let's strengthen our ties with each other inside the tent. In addition to focusing outside and how to deal with the external force, let's look inside and let's be kinder to each other. Let's be more understanding of each other. Let's recognize that everyone has a different perspective. I'm talking about within our own ranks. I'm not talking about outside. This is true outside also. But within our own ranks, sometimes it's so divisive. It's like the woman who goes to the post office, yeah, to buy Hanukkah stamps. And the clerk says, um, in which denomination? And she says, even in stamps, there are different denominations, right? Okay, you're with me on the joke. The point is that Jews are oftentimes so fragmented for no reason, just because we can't see eye to eye. Such a minority of a minority, such a shared interest, shared, share, and we, we can't get along sometimes. And it's, it's sad. And so I want to end off with this. Let's strengthen our bonds with each other. Let's do whatever we can to be united as a people and see eye to eye with each other. Let's not turn on each other. You know, some Jews are going to battle anti-Semitism by hitting the synagogue and, and studying and praying. Some people are going to go to the army and fight. Some people are going to advocate on, 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 at the White House and in Congress. Some people, and respect the other. That might be not, maybe I'm the scholar and you're the advocate and you're the warrior, but let's respect each other. Let's not look down. Oh, the religious, they're wasting their time studying and praying. Oh, the secular, the, it's enough fighting already. Enough fighting. It doesn't do anyone any, 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 any benefit. Let's recognize that there are different personalities and different approaches. Let's respect each other. Let's get along with each other. This is the, what Esther, if you recall, what Esther says to Haman, uh, sorry, Mordechai, sorry. Esther says to, to Mordechai upon hearing the decree, she says, I'm going in to the king. I'm going to fast for three days. She says, "Lech kenos, call called Go and gather the people and pray and fast for me. A people gathered together in unison as a people that are strong, Am Yisrael Chai. The Jewish people live. We're not going anywhere. Let's be strong. Let's get along, and let's always reach out to the other, extending the olive branch, extending an opening for conciliation, for reconciliation, as opposed to hostility. Thank you for joining me for these four lessons on outsmarting anti-Semitism. I hope these have been valuable to you. I hope you've enjoyed the insights and for the Jewish insights and the conversation. And I appreciate all your input. The limitations of the platform, maybe not as much dialogue as uh, or conversation as as we'd like. But I appreciate you being with here with me for these four weeks, and I want to recommend, I want to ask that you continue the journey of study with me. We have upcoming incredible upcoming opportunities to study and to engage, to to be with the community, to help out those in need and to explore our own spiritual paths and everything in between. So I'm going to mention a few quick things. Number one, the next JLI, Jewish Learning Institute, course is taking place, like a course like this, will begin January 25th and 27th. The course is called, and you're going to love this, Meditation from Sinai. And I'm going to show you, after we're done, I'm going to show you a quick 90-second video trailer of this course. The course is all about Jewish understanding and practicing Jewish meditation as distinct from other meditative paths. There's a unique form of Jewish meditation. We're going to explore that with six weeks of meditation. Okay, that's number one. And I encourage everyone to check that out on our website, intownjewishacademy.org, and sign up. You're going to love that course. By the way, if you sign up in the next few days, take $10 off the course, type in the code meditation ten. For $10 off, my gift to you for being part of this experience together with me, Meditation 10, for 10 bucks off the meditation course. Next, Saturday night, we have a Chanukah jewelry workshop and holiday party, 7.30 p.m. here at Chabad and online. You can create beautiful jewelry, holiday-themed jewelry. Check that out on the website. Sunday afternoon, we have a special day, a mitzvah day, meals of love, cooking, and preparing meals for the residents, for the people that are in Rebecca's tent, shelter, women without homes, um, a shelter that is in conjunction with Sheriff Israel, a local synagogue in, uh, in Morningside. We are teaming up together to prepare meals for those in need. It's a tremendous mitzvah. Please pitch in and help out our own community on Sunday. You can volunteer. You can help sponsor a meal or two on the website, again, InTownJewishAcademy.org. We have a special celebration Sunday Sunday evening for the 19th of Kislev. Stay tuned for more information about that. If you haven't yet received it, stay tuned for that. Next, we have a Kabbalah class, Kabbalah of the Matrix, coming up in December. And finally, I wanna mention one more thing. In January, I believe the date is January 11th, we are having a live online event, a live Zoom event with Australian Kabbalist, Rabbi Label Wolf. We've had him in the past. He's amazing. He's going to be doing a session on Kabbalah meditation called Mastering Our New World. Mastering Our New World. You're going to love this event. It's on the website as well. Check it out. Finally, I think I said that was finally, but I have one more that I just remembered. A musical event that will blow your socks off. Live musical event called Judaism, the soundtrack. The soundtrack. You will not want to miss this. Stay tuned for more information. You're you're going to love this. All right, my friends, that takes me to the end. And uh, if I can indulge your patience for just another moment, um, I'd love to show you the following video that I have loaded up for us to watch about the upcoming JLI course. So here we go, my friends. Oh, hold on one second. Can you guys see that screen? Not yet. See it? That, were you able to see that? Did that come through okay? Yeah? Okay. Fantastic. Beautiful. So, my friends, thank you for joining once again. And uh, I look forward to seeing everybody very soon. All right. I'm here for any questions or comments, but uh, thank you very much. And Lila Toe for those that are that are bouncing. when
1: I with we my great nephew last Sunday. I don't know how Landy Simmons looked him up, but he was telling us about an Uber driver he had. I the driver didn't know he was Jewish. And he said something so mostly to him Well, what's your problem with the Jews? He Oh, they're all rich. He said, Do you want to be rich? Yeah. He said, Become a Jew.
0: <laughs> there you go. But that's Good. The truth. Right? Yeah. So here's the thing we could cancel, we could shame, and we can boycott, and we can put a negative review and, and, and slant. Or, you know, make a joke or have a conversation. I, 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 I I've heard so many stories, countless stories, people have told me, personal stories, of somebody that said something anti-Semitic. They didn't know that they were Jewish, right? And they said, look, let me, let me speak to you. I want to, you know, and maybe not call them out in the group, but pull them over to the side a little later and say, hey, listen, I'm Jewish. Let me explain to you why it's, why it's offensive. Let's have a conversation, and let's have a better understanding. It's these individual interactions that make a, a world of difference, a world of difference. We had, some of you were there, we had T.M. Garrett, uh, Neo-Nazi. Remember T.M. Garrett? Who was here at Chabad for that? Yeah, B.C., before Corona, right? Before COVID. B.C. in the... Uh, in the uh... Ken, it's good to see you. Ken, it's good to see you in good health. Amazing. Thank you. Amazing. I saw you smile. Huh? Can
4: I offer you a little bit of information? Sure. About Thomas Edison and uh, Henry Ford they were both anti Semitic. And they were buddies. Okay, and they worked on electric cars together, which that project failed because at that time, gasoline was so cheap, and had a much more extended range. Um, I thought you let let you know that. Interesting. And one of the time, you said the experiences about anti Semitism. I was down in Florida with a buddy of mine at this bar in a rural area. I, I didn't know it. He knew it. And there was this song that came on the jukebox. And it was a very anti-Semitic, you know, F the Jews, mm. get, get Jews get out of the uh, show, whatever the hell it is. And Hey, uh, you want to know what I did? I asked my buddy, I said, look, I said, First of all, we need to get the hell out of here. And second of all, you know, do you happen to happen to have an extra hand grenades or, or dynamite sticks? <laughs> no, I'm just joking. I, <laughs> well, I'm
0: just Right. Scared. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I yeah. Well, you, you probably felt like you didn't want to give them business. And and look, what it's, it's yeah. very it's very important that I that I reiterate. Not every time is uh, is it going to be so feasible to engage in these diplomatic. Uh, um, efforts. But, but very often, that is a way that's more effective and more, uh, more long-term effective. So all right. Good. Thank you for sharing. And it's good to see you. Good to see you in good health.
4: It's good to be here. Good.
0: That's it. That's it. All right. Any other questions, comments before we close it out? All right, my friends, it's great to see you all. Chazak, chazak. Be strong, be strong. And let's, uh, let's remember to stay strong internally. When we're strong and united internally, that goes a long way. All right, Lila Tove, see you guys soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks for being part of it. See you.